Hi, I'm Mark Kernian and I teach chemistry. Hi, I'm Jack Kernian and I teach physics. And welcome to the My Science Podcast, where learning about chemistry and physics becomes what it always should have been, fun and interesting, yet serious and valuable. Mark and I are identical twin brothers who started our careers as engineers and switched to science education more than three decades ago. That's over 60 years of combined experience teaching high school students about the amazing insights of the physical sciences. And we want to share that experience with you. So if you have any comments or questions about today's podcast, send them to Kernian at myscience-prep.com. That's K-E-R-N-I-O-N at myscience-prep.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, Jack, are you ready? I am ready for our podcast. Today, we are going to talk about who most people would consider to be the greatest American chemist of the 20th century. Wow, starting with the greatest. Now we're not building up. We're going no, right to the no, top. We are, we, are, we are there. Okay. And I think most people probably don't even know him. Yeah, well, let's, let's hear about him, whoever he is. All right, so I'm going to tell you his name and tell me if you've heard of him before. Okay. His name is Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling, yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard You've about heard him. Heard of Linus yeah. Pauling? Yeah. yeah. Anything yeah. spring I, to mind when you think about Linus Pauling? I'll, I'll be honest with you. The very first thing I think about with Linus Pauling is vitamin C. Uh, For yeah. some reason, that pops to mind. I know Dad used to take vitamin C like crazy, yes. and I remember thinking it was because of Linus Pauling. <laughs> yes, yeah. But I can't remember he why. He was a proponent of taking mega doses of vitamin C to ward off things like cancer, and that didn't uh, make him the greatest chemist. That's not what made him okay. the greatest chemist. That was really something that he investigated and became a proponent of later on okay. in his career. Okay. What makes him the greatest chemist, I think, though, is in the way that he described himself as a very great problem solver. Like mm. solving problems was what he considered to be um, you know, the, mm. the, his biggest accomplishment. It's um, interesting you say that because I think that uh, there's a book that I've read and I know most a lot of people have read. It's called The uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Yes. And Thomas Kuhn was a philosopher historian from harvard and he wrote a book about how when um people are actually doing science they're doing nothing more than puzzle solving sure you know? so yeah. problem solving puzzle solving yeah. seems to be a, a threat a, a through line that i hear about whenever we hear about the scientific endeavor so he was good at that as right it's really and, and and i think many people uh even non-scientists are very really much very much like pauling in the sense that they solve problems i always give so much credit to plumbers. Yeah. Uh, when you try sure. and do some work in your home that has to do with plumbing, uh, it, it's just mm-hmm. one problem after another and it's solving that. At least my experience. Oh, is I'm that the something same you, exact yeah. way? I just wonder how these things go from one place to the other, you know, and all connected nice and solidly and so on. It's, it's so, amazing. So kudos to the plumbers yes, out there. Absolutely. Yeah. So Linus Pauling was just a, a, a great problem solver. And he said, um, uh, and this is one of his. Uh, famous quotes is that in order to have a good idea to solve a problem, you have to have lots of ideas. Hmm. So he, he uh, didn't just settle on one uh, uh, explanation for things. Uh, he, he thought about things in a myriad of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that makes sense, too, because everybody has a lot of uh, ways in which they could think about things, but not all of them are home runs. That's right, you know, yeah. Not everything is going to win a Nobel Prize. That's right, yeah. Although that would be nice. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, that's not going to happen, yeah. He grew up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he was raised mostly by his mother, who he claimed never really understood him. 
I'm sure you um, felt that way in your life sometimes. Uh, someone you know, doesn't understand someone you. Someone doesn't sure. understand you. So yeah. it's really hard to be yourself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and realize the kind of things that you might want to have come to fruition. That's right. Um, his father died uh, when he was uh, very uh, young. But before he died, uh, his father uh, had a sense of what like uh, Linus Pauling was like. Uh, I remember seeing in a video a, a story that Linus Pauling said about his father that... Um, uh, where Linus never really liked doing the things that normal, like quote unquote, boys at the time would do, like playing baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he liked to read, and so his father sent a letter to the editor of the Portland Oregonian, a newspaper in Portland at the time, asking for some advice about uh, what books young Linus Pauling might read. And and that that in and of itself doesn't seem like a a great story, but the the, the uh, extra part of it goes that his father told the editor, "Don't include the Bible or Origin of Species because Linus had read those things oh, already." So <laughs> yeah, it was his father trying to take care of his son's needs, <laughs> and I think understood how much. Yeah. Um, Pauling appreciated reading and learning, and as a result of that, becoming a better problem solver. Sure. So what do you think his major contribution to chemistry was, since he was the greatest American chemist of the 20th century wow. in so many people's eyes? Yeah, um, I'm, because the vitamin C thing sticks in my mind, um, I'm probably not going to get the right answer. Yeah. I, You know... I, I really wish I something to do with quantum mechanics. Maybe I I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know when we've talked before uh, about quantum mechanics, and there's a particular name uh, of a principle in quantum oh, yes. mechanics called. Do you remember? Do you know? It was the it was the Pauli exclusion principle. The Pauli exclusion yeah. principle. Yes, mm-hmm. this is uh, this is Pauling. So it's P-A-U-L-I-N-G. a different person. Okay, well I'm completely off base here. No, that's okay. Yeah. I think it's one of those common things mm-hmm. um, that people have a connection to. But um, his most important contribution to chemistry was that of the chemical bond. The chemical bond. Yeah, yes. Okay. It's so important in chemistry to recognize that you know we start out by looking at these individual particles of matter called. What do um, we call them? Uh, individual, individual particles, particles of matter. matter. Yes. Atoms. Atoms. Okay. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I yeah. thought you were going somewhere else. I'm not trying to trick People you. People are calling this yeah. and saying he's yeah. a physics teacher. He doesn't <laughs> yeah. know what an, I know what an atom is. I just drew a blank for a second on what the question was because it was poorly phrased. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just asked what the simplest okay. particles of matter are. <laughs> okay, I got it. And atoms. So, yeah. Atoms exist, yeah. but mm-hmm. then they they de-isolate. They they don't they don't they don't stay separated. No. They would rather it's combine. It's like people, right? People sure. love coming together, right? Yeah, exactly. And so uh, the idea of a chemical bond is, you know, what is it that causes the de-isolation of these atoms? It causes them to group up. Okay. Okay. When you think about chemistry, there's really like uh, just a few big ideas. And one mm-hmm. of them is that atoms exist. And the mm-hmm. second one is that atoms group up. Yeah. And then... That's pretty um, fundamental, those two things. Yeah. But, but, and then even more than that, then the, the groupings could change. Okay. And so you have chemical processes. Mm-hmm. And then also we want to ask, like, how fast does that happen? Mm-hmm. And then you want to ask, uh, like, why does it happen? Mm-hmm. Why do these groupings change? And then to what end? And so what, what's the yeah. purpose of all you this? You know, as so, you're saying all these things, I'm thinking to myself that people in general can ask the same questions about themselves. If you think about a person as an atom, mm-hmm. you know, and then they tend to de-isolate yes. by coming together, making mm-hmm. friends. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those friendships change, yes. right? Yeah. So instead of being friends with one person, I'm now friends with another person in high school than I was in college and things like that. 
And what was the next one of that? And that? you also think about like how quickly these how quickly changes can take place, right? right exactly. Uh, why they take place? Yeah. Uh, you know, why, yeah. why is it that we uh, don't yeah. remain friends with the people well, we went I to elementary in school ways, with? In all in all cases, yeah. Well, I think those questions are a little bit harder, even than maybe than, than what we're talking about with with I Adams, so because too. those are material complex. things that can maybe behave in a way that's very predictable. Yes. Whereas human behavior is somewhat, at least in my uh, opinion, less predictable and more difficult to predict, you know, how people are going to behave. But um, right. but it reminded me when you were saying that, that it's really similar in some ways to our interests in how people behave. Yeah. And I think it makes it easier to understand, too, if you have these kinds of, uh, um, you know, metaphors, symmetries, yeah. and, uh, oh, yeah. you know, uh, on different levels, the way in mm-hmm. which things behave in similar kinds of ways. Sure. So his major contribution was was uh, toward uh, an understanding of the chemical bond. And in 1954, he won a Nobel Prize for his research into the nature of the chemical bond mm-hmm. and its application to the elucidation of the structure of complex substances. Okay. That's what was uh, on his Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. But the thing about uh, Linus Pauling that makes him kind of unique is that he not only won a Nobel Prize for chemistry, he also won a Nobel Prize for peace. What? Yeah. So I, I, you know what? That, that does ring a bell now. I I do remember hearing that. That's so really yeah, amazing. in 1962. So in two separate decades in the 1900s, okay. wow. um, uh, he won two separate and also independent Nobel prizes. Uh, people have won more than one Nobel Prize, but never like on their own. They've been in mm-hmm. different groups I that see. have won uh, more than one Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. That is just, let me just, I hate to stop you. Okay. I know you're heading in a certain direction here, but in order for me to understand how somebody can win a Nobel Prize, I have to, first of all, go out of my, pass my own experience and think about the amount of effort and work it must have been and dedication it must have been just to, to, to do one. And I think that he really, one? really um, uh, had a, a strong desire to be able to solve these problems. I see. And so I think that's one of the things that that causes him to um, be so great. Uh, He just loves solving problems. Mm -hmm. So the chemical bond was a particular problem that needed to be solved, and we're going to talk about exactly what that is when we come back from the break. All right. All right, Jack. So before the break, we were talking about how Linus Pauling won a Nobel Prize in 1954 for his research into the nature of the chemical bond. And so I think a a, a question might be uh, that comes up is, what do you think a chemical bond is as opposed to any old kind of bond? Well, in general, a bond is when things are kind of hooked together in some way. So a chemical bond would be when atoms are hooked together in some way. And that's one kind of thing that could happen. I mean, mm-hmm. atoms could come together and mm-hmm. and and produce uh, about, uh, and form this this chemical bond, mm-hmm. which allows us to be able to, to um, uh, think about this grouping in a particular kind of way. Right. But it's not only just atoms that could come together. Okay. There's uh, other kinds of particles that can come together. Do you know what a charged particle is called? An ion. It's right. Uh, yeah. So ions can come together and form a chemical bond. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Molecules can interact with each other right. as well and mm-hmm. and form bonds, and but not are necessarily of atoms. That's in right. Specific proportions, right? That's right. They're combinations of atoms bonded in a particular kind of way yeah. in particular mm-hmm. proportions. Mm-hmm. But um, molecules could also bond to each other, right? But you wouldn't refer to those things as chemical bonds. No. Okay. Because a chemical bond. Uh, is one in which uh, the substances do come together in definite proportions. Yeah. All right, and and can do so in two different uh, 
processes forming okay. a compound. Okay. Like a compound is something that follows the law of definite composition. Mm-hmm. Whereas bringing water molecules together via bonding doesn't mm-hmm. form a compound. So let, let me just see if I, I take the place of the audience here and ask okay. to make sure I get this. You're saying that when uh, atoms come together in definite compos- definite proportions mm-hmm. and form molecules, mm-hmm. the bonding in that regard is chemical bond. It's a chemical bond, yeah. But, but also with ions, with as, ions well. as well. Ions okay. can come together okay. and form a chemical bond. Okay. But, but if you have molecules coming together, like at, like wa- water molecules, they're bonding in a different way than what we would call a chemical bond. It wouldn't bond. be a chemical bond. Okay. So, you know, something like liquid water, or mm-hmm. I should say gaseous water, steam, mm-hmm. yeah. could turn into liquid water through mm-hmm. bonding, uh, mm-hmm. but not chemical bonding, because all mm-hmm. you're doing is forming a liquid from a gas. Yeah, so thinking there about bonding is just the things being held together or hooked together. But if you do it from molecule to molecule, that's not a chemical bond. That's not a chemical atom bond. Atom to atom within a molecule is a chemical bond. That's right. And, okay. and, and the biggest thing to think about in that regard that sort of follows the law of definite composition mm-hmm. is that there's like a recipe oh, for yeah. things that have chemical I bonds. I see what you're saying. That, that doesn't apply to like just water molecules in general. Mm-hmm. You could have 10 trillion of them That's right. in a bucket or 20 trillion of them in That's a bucket. Right. There's not any specific number there's needed. No, no particular But in ratio. a chemical bond, as a very specific number of atoms of one type go with another type or something like that. That's yeah, what you're and you've, you've heard of this kind of thing, I'm sure. It's a, it's a, it's a term that's used uh, you know, all the time when we think about this. Uh, uh, and, and, and I'm wondering if you know what it would be, a way in which chemists describe this recipe, this particular um, okay. well, bonification. Like a, like a formula? That's chemical exactly formula? right. So chemical okay. formula. So okay. things that are bonded chemically have formulas associated okay. with them, whereas uh, things that are not bonded chemically yeah. don't have formulas associated yeah, I appreciate with them. that distinction because I think a bonding, you know, of, of materials or substances seem all the same, but it, they're really not. There's different types of bonding going and there's, on. There's right? different characteristics mm-hmm. associated with the bonding mm-hmm. that's going on. Got it. So okay. when ions cling to each other, mm-hmm. uh, they do so in a particular ratio, mm-hmm. and so we could have formulas for ionic mm-hmm. compounds. We could have mm-hmm. formulas for molecular compounds. I see. But we don't have formulas for individual substances that just show molecules of those right. things right. Uh, coming together. Yeah, okay, I got that. There are interactions between those kinds of things, mm-hmm. and they do cling to each mm-hmm. other, but not mm-hmm. in a chemical kind of way. Okay. That's really clear now. Thanks. That's okay. And so the, there are different processes by which this kind of thing happens as well, mm-hmm. uh, processes by which um, molecules could form or in which uh, ionic substances could form as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and these processes are things that I'm sure most people who have taken chemistry classes have heard of before. Mm-hmm. Um, when an ion forms, uh, what kind of thing must occur? Like, so you have an atom, mm-hmm. and we want to make it charged. Right. So, what kind of thing might happen? Then okay. So, think. I think I'm thinking about an atom as a neutral thing. Okay. okay. Where maybe there's the same number of protons as there are electrons inside yes. the atom. Maybe okay. some neutrons in there as well inside the nucleus. They but don't really have anything. They to do don't have anything to do with the bonding and stuff or the charge. But if I take away an electron, then the atom becomes an ion. Or That's if right. I add an electron, the atom becomes an ion. So it's a unbalanced charged entity in a sense. Okay, so in order to have that kind of thing take place, then there mm-hmm. has to be what chemists would refer to as a transfer of electrons. Okay. So ion, ionic mm-hmm. bonding is all about the transferring of electrons mm-hmm. where atoms lose or gain electrons. Mm-hmm. Once those charged particles form as a result of that, then there's going to be this opportunity mm-hmm. for the substances to cling to each other mm-hmm. uh, via mm-hmm. the electrostatic charge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because and, and opposites attract. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to come together in particular ratios. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you form these um, 
ionic crystals. Mm-hmm. Um, all ionic substances are solids at room temperature. Mm-hmm. And so you have this building up of particles as a result of this. Can you give me an example of an ionic substance? Uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, one that everybody's heard of would be like sodium chloride, mm-hmm. uh, where sodium atoms and chlorine atoms mm-hmm. transfer electrons. The sodium mm-hmm. becomes positively charged because mm-hmm. it loses mm-hmm. electrons. Mm-hmm. The chlorine becomes negatively charged because it gains the electron that mm-hmm. the sodium lost. Mm-hmm. Then these charged particles will want to cling to each other mm-hmm. if they're around each other and have mm-hmm. the opportunity to do so. That lowers the energy of the, of the entire system. Which is good and more stable. That's right. right. Things become more stable. So that's things went ahead mm-hmm. in that particular direction. Yeah. It's interesting because we're going back to the metaphor of like people. Mm-hmm. When people come together and form a family unit, for example, seems to me one of the reasons is because there's more stability. They can share Some, resources. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Well, let's say in theory, that's yeah, the way it works. Theory, um, right. But I think the same thing would be true there. Lowering en- energy makes the whole thing more stable and so right. on. Exactly. And what you were mentioning before, NaCl, mm-hmm. is common table salt. So table people... Salt are familiar with that particular chemical. It is an ionic compound. compound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a compound being a substance that's formulated mm-hmm. and, it, and mm-hmm. it's held together, in this particular case, by the kind of chemical bond called an ionic bond. And for, for just to make sure, for um, this particular one, the NaCl, what's the ratio of sodiums to chlorines? Well, if uh, sodium loses one electron and chlorine gains one electron, mm-hmm. uh, the charges have to be balanced in okay. an ionic compound. And mm-hmm. so one sodium for every one chlorine mm-hmm. Uh, makes up what's referred to as a formula unit mm-hmm. of, of sodium chloride. It's the simplest ratio of the ions mm-hmm. that exist in the ionic crystal. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we have the formula NaCl for mm-hmm. sodium chloride. Something that you might have seen if you've gone to the store and bought like rock salt to put on your mm-hmm. driveway. You might even you might see that as a chemical formula on the bag for right, that kind of thing. Right. And other ionic compounds have different formulas. That's exactly right. Because of the charges that the right. ions have differ and so you always have to come together in the ratio that that balances out the charge. Give me an example of one that has a ratio that's different from one to one. Yeah something like um, uh, like magnesium chloride as opposed to sodium chloride. Magnesium typically loses two electrons and it becomes uh, a positive two charge whereas chlorine only needs one electron to become a stable ion and so you need two chlorine uh, ions to form from the one magnesium losing the two electrons. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with the simplest ratio in the ionic substance magnesium chloride being one magnesium for every two chlorines. So you call it MgCl2. That would be the okay. formula Got or the it. recipe okay. for that particular this is substance. Good. Yeah. Got it. So ionic substances are one kind of chemical compound, but molecular substances are as well. And what differentiates that, those kinds of things is the process by which these things um, form. And okay. the process they undergo in order to de-isolate. Mm-hmm. So uh, what was the process associated with ionic bonding? It was a transfer of electrons. The transfer of electrons to form these ions which are charged and mm-hmm. then will cling to each other as mm-hmm. a result of that kind of thing. Well, in, um, uh, in molecular substances, uh, the process is uh, one where the electrons get shared. Okay, You've probably yes. heard of that of course, kind of yeah. thing before. Yeah. And there's a name for that kind of That's thing. That's the covalent bond. That's covalent yeah. bonding, yeah. Co, a prefix meaning with, mm-hmm. and valent, uh, referring to the outermost valence electrons, the ones that get involved in the bonding. So, so it, there's a I sharing of those electrons. Picture this as kind of like... The old picture of the atom where you have like a solar system model, like the nucleus is like the sun yes. and the electrons are the planets going around it. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that's, that that's one way not, to take a look at it's it. Not, yeah, but it's, it's not, modern, it's not but, yeah. a- accurate, but at least it, it allows me to visualize this. Sure. The electrons that are furthest away from that center thing 
would be considered valence electrons. Yeah, yeah, the right? outermost electrons. Yeah, okay. In fact, the ones that are easiest to take away. Right. Because, because there's a lesser uh, attraction to the nucleus because mm-hmm. the particles are uh, have right. higher energy and, and, our, and mm-hmm. the ability to be able to separate them from the nucleus is easier because mm-hmm. part of the job has been done already. Yeah, they're already naturally right, further, further away. away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, molecules exhibit covalent bonding, mm-hmm. and they still come together in a formulated kind of way because okay. certain numbers of electrons need to be shared depending mm-hmm. upon the substances that you're taking a look okay. at. Okay. So uh, something like water um, uh, comes is a molecule in which hydrogen and oxygen share electrons to form covalent bonds and this little package of atoms that we refer to as a molecule. So, And in that uh, case, you need two hydrogens for every one oxygen. That's exactly right, because uh, each hydrogen has only one electron that it could share. Mm-hmm. Oxygen has six in its valence shell, mm-hmm. as you were describing mm-hmm. it before. And so um, there's a stability associated with having eight electrons. Uh, in it's oxygen. called the octet rule. Mm-hmm. And, and so oxygen needs... Uh, to share an electron with two different hydrogens to be able to get that many electrons. That makes sense. Hydrogen only needs two electrons to be happy, in a okay. sense. Uh, it only has to um, follow what's referred to as the duet rule. Mm-hmm. And I know these are a lot of terms that people might not appreciate, but different atoms require uh, different numbers of electrons, although most of them require eight. Right. And so uh, the octet rule is satisfied. Uh, sharing of electrons takes place. A covalent bond is formed, and a molecule gets made, which is just a package of atoms covalently bonded. And that's the way you should think chemically about Chemically bonded, right. Chemically bonded, okay. yes, yeah. So uh, what do you think is stronger, the ionic bond or the covalent bond? Wow. Um, In other words, yeah. uh, which one would take more energy to, to, to separate, break or yeah. separate those things? Well, my, my gut reaction is it's the covalent bond, but I, it's, I, don't, I really honestly don't remember Okay, when we come back from the break, I'm going to tell you which one's stronger. Hi, I'm Ben from the band Sonic Acrylic, who provided the music for this podcast. We just put out our new album, Alternates. Here's a clip from track four, Disasteroid. That was Disasteroid off of our new album, Alternates. To hear more, go to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or anywhere else you like to listen. Or head on over to our website, sonicacrylic.com. Okay, so before the break, I was asking you, Jack, uh, what do you think is stronger, the ionic bond or the covalent bond? And you said... I said covalent for no reason other than just I think that's the way it is. <laughs> and that is correct. Yeah, the yeah, covalent yeah. bond is generally stronger than the ionic bond. But the ionic bond is strong, sure. uh, relatively speaking, to other kinds of interactions. And I'm talking about like those non-chemical oh, kind, yeah. you know, like the interactions between molecules mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or even the interaction between metal atoms in a oh. process called metallic bonding, mm-hmm. which is... Still fairly strong, uh, mm-hmm. but not as strong as ionic and covalent. Okay. And one of the ways we can recognize that kind of thing is by taking a look at the melting points of substances mm. uh, that have these kinds of bonds associated mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, uh, 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 in terms of melting point, 
would be associated with covalent bonds? Higher or lower melting points? Well, it seems to me like if you have a really high melting point, that means you have to add more energy to it so that the bond is stronger. That's right. That stronger right? bonds are associated with higher melting points because you've got to put more energy in to separate those kinds right. of things. Right. If it that takes less energy to separate them, then they would have lower temperatures yeah. in which that kind of thing okay. occurs. Yep. And so what we recognize is, is that when, um, when substances are covalently bonded, it takes more energy to separate those kinds of things. And so we okay. call, call that a stronger bond. Stronger Ionic bond. bonds are still strong. I think I might have mm-hmm. mentioned before that, uh, you know, there's there's not an ionic substance that's not a solid at room temperature. Right. These bonds are really strong. Uh, mm-hmm. and now you could heat them up some and get mm-hmm. them to melt, mm-hmm. but uh, it still takes some energy to do it. Yeah. But but purely covalently bonded substances mm-hmm. have much uh, higher melting points. You're One that I think that. about is like a big macromolecular substance in which a bunch of carbon atoms are in a three dimensional network all mm. bound to each other. Oh, I think you know I know what, what that's you're called. Yeah. You're talking about diamonds. That's right? diamond. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And uh, so the the strength of the bonds between the carbon atoms give an indication uh, about um, how high the melting point would be. So it's somewhere yeah. in the 4,000 so Fahrenheit were, range. if there were less strong bonds, yeah. you could melt it at a lower temperature. Melt it at a yeah. lower temperature because okay. there's not as much holding things yeah. together. Just I think about, too, going back to this metaphor of people and stuff, if the bond is strong, it's hard to separate them. That's right. Right? That's right. It's hard to melt them in a sense because melting would involve going from a solid, which is highly organized, to something particles generally that's, closer together. That, that's less organized than a liquid. Right. right. Exactly. Now, when you talk about organization and okay, that, uh, that's yes, more with entropy, entropy yeah. Kind of thing, but uh, yeah. but your idea is is, is correct to right. think about that particular kind of analogy. Mm-hmm. So you have ionic bonds and you have covalent bonds. They're different kind of bonds, but they're the same as well because they're both what connecting atoms together to form a molecule. No, that's yeah. covalent bonding. Oh. Ionic bonding and covalent bonding are both the same, and that they're both chemical bonds. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, of yeah, course. ones yeah. in which formulas yeah. are, are derived. Okay, yeah. I, uh, I, that's I okay. Wasn't sorry, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you failed for the first test. <laughs> okay. I'm sure there'll be many more. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but but the thing is, most of the time, for most substances, uh, you get a blend between ionic and covalent character mm-hmm. in the bond. It's mm-hmm. not just pure covalent, and it's mm-hmm. not just a pure ionic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a blend, uh, okay. sort of like properties that would be mm-hmm. um, uh, a result of a little bit of transfer and mm-hmm. a little bit of sharing. Okay. And those are processes that you should now associate with those particular kinds of things. So the electrons could be shared, but not smack dab in between the two mm-hmm. particles. Mm-hmm. They're going to be pulled toward one, one atom or the, the other. other. Yeah, I And there's a name for that kind of thing. I'm going to redeem myself uh, yes. here okay. from the previous one. That is a polar covalent That's right. Bond. It's called a polar covalent bond because it has two ends to it, just yeah. like a pole does. Yeah. And so there's a polarity associated with bonds most one of the time. One side negative, not always. one side at least partially negative, the other side partially yeah. And positive. that's the side where the electrons are drawn toward, toward more. more. Right. And, uh, and then there's the positive side where they're... The, Lack mm-hmm. of positive, yeah. lack of negativeness causes it to right. be positive. Right, and so uh, polar bonds have a little bit of the best of both worlds then Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. tend to be stronger than their non-polar counterpart okay and so because you have like the sharing and you have the um, uh, transfer Transfer. and and uh, so you have a little bit of charge separation that causes the things to come together Mm -hmm. and also just the attraction between the shared electrons to the nuclei yeah so it's it's the best of both worlds Mm -hmm. and that's what Linus Pauling recognized that the, the, the polar bond is going to be a little bit stronger than its non-polar counterpart. Okay. And so as a result of that, he measured, or that result of that thinking, mm-hmm. he measured the um, actual bond strength mm-hmm. of um, and how much energy it would take to separate mm-hmm. bonds, mm-hmm. Uh, particles in a molecule. Mm-hmm. Um, 
comparing that strength to what he theoretically thought it would be if it was purely covalent. Oh, okay. And so there were, um, you know, in, in many, many substances, uh, uh, this analysis that took place that, that showed that there were there was a certain atom that was able to polarize bonds more than anything else, Mm -hmm. more than others could. Mm -hmm. And uh, he described the property that this particular particle had, the ability to polarize bonds, but still remain covalent, um, with a term that I'm sure you've heard of uh, very well uh, already. Do you know what that might be? This idea Uh. that that, uh, an atom could polarize a bond by pulling mm. electrons toward oh, it more is than... That, I, I'm taking, I guess, here, but it's electronegativity? That's what it's called. Yeah. It's called electronegativity. Mm-hmm. And uh, fluorine was shown this to is, be this able is to Linus polarize... This idea. Well, not uh, his idea necessarily, but his measurement of this kind oh, of thing. Oh, okay. I see. Um, yes. Uh, because he was able to measure the differences between mm-hmm. bond strengths I got it. actually yeah. versus what they theoretically would be if they mm-hmm. were just purely covalent mm-hmm. and found out that fluorine caused the biggest differences okay. between those two things. Mm-hmm. And so he characterized fluorine as having the highest electronegativity or ability okay. this to, is now to attract to shared pairs of electrons in a bond. Class. Okay, great. Yeah. And he gave values to um, the abilities that these particular mm-hmm. atoms have, like mm-hmm. electronegativity values. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, periodic charts have these values in them just mm-hmm. as much as they might have uh, like atomic number. So you can compare one to the other. Yeah. And so do, do you have any sense or remembrance of what the value for fluorine might be? You know, when you asked that, the number 4.7 came to mind. But 4. I have, 7, It's close. Is it? It's 4.0. Fluorine oh, okay, has good. a value hey, of 4.0. Good yeah. for my memory. You're getting better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've now taken your E and elevated it to a D. <laughs> the uh, uh, electronegativity of chlorine is the highest. Okay. Chlorine could polarize bonds better than any other atom. Okay. Do you know what the least po- uh, polarizing atom is or the one that has the smallest electronegativity? Is it hydrogen? It's not hydrogen. Hydrogen's sort of in the middle. Okay. Hydrogen's sort of like uh, can, can polarize bonds better than some things and, okay. and less than others. How about nitrogen? No. Nitrogen actually has a fairly high electronegativity. Oh, okay. Yeah. I could just keep going. I can yeah. hold oh, 100 and whatever number <laughs> <laughs> until I get oh, it right. Yeah. So now you've taken your D and gone down okay. to the E range again. Because <laughs> you're just like throwing, I have to stop just throwing just stuff. Throwing the stuff. See, it hits sticks to the wall. Okay. Uh, All right. Yeah. There, there are the metallic substances, particularly things like uh, cesium. Oh. A cesium and that was um, my next guess. Is that right? I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> cesium has a value of like 0.7. Okay. So does francium, uh, mm-hmm. but francium there's so little of it in the world that we mm. tend not even like mm. to think about not it. Not even in France. No, nope, not even uh, in France. Yeah, there's only about two grams in the in the in the, in the on the Earth at any given time. What? Because it's radioactive and it oh, breaks okay. down, but it gets huh. also made in other processes about the same rate. Okay. And so at any particular like an moment, there's only about two grams. That is of really francium. fascinating. Extremely wow. reactive. You're, you're mm-hmm. not going to find francium mm-hmm. in nature okay. uh, um, very much. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. But but you can find cesium and mm-hmm. um, it's a silvery looking metal mm-hmm. and when even it's in the presence of other substances it wants to change. Okay, uh, but it has a very low electronegativity. Okay, so, so it forms you, not good uh, polar covalent bonds. Would be more well, no, it forms covalent bonds. It's just that it's not the substance that's uh, that, that pol- uh, polar covalent bonds. It's just not the substance where the electrons go to. It's the okay. substance that gives up the electrons. Got it. Got it, got uh, it. But 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 it won't even form covalent bonds because mm-hmm. it wants to give them up so much. It'll okay. basically be a transfer. I see. And so um, so it goes just to pure ionic bond. There's there, there's these ranges of differences between electronegativities of different substances that allow mm-hmm. us to be able to describe something as being primarily covalent mm-hmm. or polar covalent mm-hmm. or 
basically ionic. Okay. Um, if you have a difference of around um, uh, 1.7 or more mm-hmm. in electronegativity between the particles that are coming together, then you're mm-hmm. likely to have an ionic bond. Mm-hmm. Because one substance wants the part the electrons right. so much, the electrons yeah. will, uh, and the other substance willing to give those things up, that yeah. there's basically going to be a transfer of the That would be like uh, two people. One is like a bodybuilder, and the other one's a little baby. Mm-hmm. And the bodybuilder body just pulls so hard. Yeah. Yes, okay, yeah. got it. And the baby has no chance. Right. Um, right. But if you put two bodybuilders together, yeah. then they're, yeah. they're going to be or forced to share the electrons. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. yeah. They have to share things but then if you put like a bodybuilder together with someone who's somewhat strong yeah, you know not yeah. a baby then the bodybuilder might not be able to take them completely and so you end up right. with a polar covalent bond okay. the electrons are transferred partially yeah and you end up with this bond that has sort of the best of both worlds it's yep. a bit ionic and it's a bit covalent okay and so um we were able to uh, differentiate the different kind of bonds by this uh, property of atoms that that Linus Pauling gave us called electronegativity, mm-hmm. and it's for that that he won the, the chemical uh, uh, the Nobel Prize uh, in 1954, uh, basically mm-hmm. on this uh, way of understanding chemical bonding. Mm-hmm. But it's not the only thing he worked on, mm-hmm. and so I want to share with you some of the things, other things he might have worked on in just a minute. Okay. This is Ben again from Sonic Acrylic. Really hope you enjoyed the clip we played at the last break. Going to play another one here for you off of track six on the album. This is called Forever. That was a clip off of track six, Forever. You can find more at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, and wherever else you listen. Thanks. So I think we recognize why Linus Pauling won a Nobel Prize in 1954 in chemistry. But he also dabbled into biological sciences as well. Wow. And uh, was really the first to construct a satisfactory model of the protein molecule. Hmm. Yeah, protein uh, are uh, important substances in the body that sure. perform various functions, yep. uh, like uh, amino acids. Mm-hmm. And so um, he really branched out from chemistry and, and looked into these kinds of things as well. He must have had an amazing mind and very creative, you know, to so be able there to do There was a problem like to solve, and so yeah, he set yeah. himself uh, yeah. towards solving it. Wow. And, then, and then that led him toward uh, uh, producing a structure for DNA, um, hmm. uh, you know, uh, which uh, actually turned out to be wrong. <laughs> it was he, wrong. He published. Okay. He published a paper. Well, <laughs> yeah. there were a lot of other people working on this yeah. at the time, and when P- Pauling uh, published it, these other people thought, "Well, they lost." You oh. know, until they started to read the paper and realized that Pauling made some mistakes in some basic fundamental chemistry, wow. <laughs> which is kind of amazing for yeah. a person of his stature. That is surprising. Uh, he, he described it as like one of the greatest blunders of his career. Wow. And so, do you know who it was that did come up with a proper structure of DNA? Well, I know the names associated in my mind are Crick and Watson. That's right, Crick and Watson. You know where they worked? In Britain? In uh, particularly what, uh, what, what university? Uh, Cambridge? Cambridge University, okay. yeah. yeah. And, and, and they actually did their work in the Cavendish Laboratories. Oh, where, okay. And it's kind of interesting. That's where so much uh, atomic structure 
was discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, J.J. Thompson discovered the electron there. Okay. Ernest Rutherford, um, the nucleus. Mm-hmm. Um, the neutron was discovered there as well. Chadwick. Uh, Chadwick, right. that's right, yeah. And so, so many things happened there. And one of, one of another thing was the, determining the structure of DNA. Wow. Uh, Crick and Watson uh, generally given credit for that. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Double Helix by James I Watson. No. I, I would recommend anybody who's listening is to read that. If you want to see what the life of a scientist back then was sort of like, yeah. um, and, and it really wasn't one of dedicated hard work. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Really? It did a lot of tennis playing <laughs> when I was reading that. So, well, you need to have um, a little bit of time away from the hard work to let your mind open up enough to be creative in some ways. Yeah, but it's even more than that. More if, than you that. Read, if you read the book, uh, uh-huh. it's just very uh, interesting. It, yeah. it was a uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. The, oh, my gosh. The, the double helix. So, so he helped come up with DNA and, and then went to Pulitzer Prize about how he did it in a lazy exactly, way. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Okay. So, so uh, the structure of DNA uh, that uh, Crick and Watson came up uh, with was sort of an embarrassment to Pauling, mm. but I think we could forgive him for that of because course. remember he said uh, uh, at the beginning uh, I, I quoted him: "In order to have a good idea, you have to have lots of ideas." Yeah, and so I don't think we should um, you know, condemn him as a result of him being wrong in this I particular. I think every instance. person listening to this uh, podcast would say. Not every one of their ideas has been the best. Right. You know, but like you said, the more you have, the more likely you're going to have a good one. You have one. an opportunity to have something that really hits a home run. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had mentioned at the beginning, too, that he was a proponent of taking mega doses of vitamin C. I remember C. that. Yep. Uh, and it was basically to ward off cancer. Yeah. And so um, uh, he died in when he was 93 years old of cancer. Oh. But he did make it to 93. Okay. Uh, he had yeah. prostate That's cancer. pretty good. Yeah. So um, it was sort of like, I don't know if you recall or not, there was a book that was out when we were young. It was called The Complete Book of Running. Yeah, by Jim the, Fix. By Jim yeah. Fix, yeah. You know how he died? He died while running. He died running, yeah. <laughs> uh, having a heart attack. Uh-huh. But but people claim, and I think it's a you know, way of looking at it, that mm-hmm. maybe he would have had it a lot earlier if he hadn't run there you go. so yeah. much. So, and Linus Pauling would have died of cancer when he was 83. Yeah, if he did, yeah exactly, yeah. if he didn't take mega doses of vitamin mm-hmm. C. Yeah. So I think Linus Pauling is a very interesting character. Um, you know, the, the, the winning of the two Nobel Prizes independently separates him, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there's so many other things that he's responsible for. But the most important thing in my mind is the chemical bond, which we've discussed today. Sounds good. Thanks, Mark. It was interesting. All right, Jack. Bye. This has been MySciencePrep.com's Chemistry and Physics Podcast. It was produced in Pittsburgh, PA. Visit MyScience-Prep.com for more episodes.